0: Good evening. This talk is an addendum to part two of how to have a happy marriage, a Catholic sacramental point of view. The second talk was given at St. Ephraim on March 8th, and I didn't get to finish all the material that I had prepared. So therefore, I am now recording this talk as an addendum to what I was going to talk about, which is precisely a description of the exceptional 7% of all marriages that are truly happy. For as an agenda, we're going to go through some recap, I'm going to cover the uh, a little bit of what we covered last uh, Wednesday, and then I'll dive straight into these exceptional marriages. And I'll finish with an example. Now, if you haven't heard this before, I do recommend that you listen to the, to part one and two of these talks, and I'm going to give you, um, shortly, uh, the links to where you can find them. But in these talks, we've borrowed quite a bit heavily, quite heavily, actually from the exceptional 7%, this book that you basically, uh, see here and, um, In that book, the author, Gregory, provides this sort of um, chart about marriages from the extremely low to the extremely high, and that refers to identity strength and marital satisfaction. These marriages on the left, called impoverished, basically exhibit extremely low, and low to moderate identity strength, mental satisfaction. And the conventional marriage and its two flavors storybook and star sit in the middle. They're somewhat, you know, satisfactory and somewhat long lasting. And then the exceptional marriages in our flavors of partnership marriage and spiritual peer marriage are the ones that exhibit longevity and happiness. And tonight what I want to do is really talk to you about these exceptional marriages. One thing I'll point out, which I've done before, is how the author links marital satisfaction with identity strength. And identity strength really refers to your sense of self. Who are you and how strong is that um, reality for you, meaning how real are you to yourself? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you want to be? And that he shows is directly linked to marital satisfaction. And we'll go through that. uh, when we start talking about the, those particular types of exceptional marriages. All right. Like I said earlier, I was going to tell you where you find part one and two. So the first thing I'll point out is that you can go to this website, Corbono right here, Corbono.com. And you can uh, essentially find all the talks there under a heading that I'll show you, which is right down here, actually how to have a happy marriage. This is a podcast or it looks like a podcast, but when you um take a quick closer look at these two podcasts that i'm highlighting right now you'll see that this one here is about how to have a happy marriage and i additionally have a second podcast which i just opened and that has questions and answers so any questions or answers i get on um i see coming my way on at the email question at corbono.com, I tend to answer them using this Q&A. Um, like I said a little earlier, this is the main website, corbono.com, and you if you'd rather go straight up to YouTube, you can find part one and part two on YouTube using these links down here. All right, now, let's go through some recap. One thing about exceptional couples that are really important is that they actually work on a development of a positive character trait and on moral virtue and spiritual growth. And that's really, these three together form what is called a, a marital imperative. What I said last Wednesday is that for us within the Catholic environment, character traits are really a subdivision of moral virtues so now the marital imperative will really function or really have two pillars the spiritual growth one and the moral virtues one these two are referring also to the sense of self the strength of our sense of self is directly linked to spiritual growth and moral virtues, particularly within a Catholic uh, framework. Okay. What we pointed out, what I pointed out last, last Wednesday was that you start with a woman who has a moral and spiritual imperative. She knows what moral virtues and what spirituality she wants to be known by when she dies. At the end of her life, she'd like somebody to say she was that kind of a woman. You have the same for the man. So now these are people who know what they want and where they want to go. These are not people looking for someone to save them. These are people who are ready to embrace married life as a journey, joint journey, a joint destiny towards the fulfillment. Of who they want to be. So they see marriage as the best possible vehicle, chance, to become who they want to be. And I now, mean, if you notice this language I'm using is uh, it seems to be precluding, if you will, the romantic side of a relationship or precluding maybe even sexuality, but in fact it's quite the opposite. The stronger the sense of self, the stronger the intimacy, and the stronger the sexuality in, its all, in all of its beauty. So the marital imperative will emerge out of the moral and spiritual imperative of the woman and of the man. And then we can look at some examples, which is what I did last Wednesday, so I'll go through those quickly. Here's an example of a moral-spiritual imperative for, say, a woman to be a woman of faith that radiates Christ's charity around me, for, man, for the man to be a man of my word who loves God. And then together they form this marital imperative to be a trustworthy couple in the service of God and man. Now in a natural setting of a marriage, it doesn't have to include Christ or God. You could maybe construct it differently. It'd be a challenge, but it's possible. Um, and I am, I'm sure there are plenty of very happy and exceptional couples among Hindu and Muslims and atheists who are able to achieve this marital imperative once they set their hearts and mind to it. And that's really the key is to be determined to make marriage the center of your life. As another example, to be a peaceful, strong woman who is available as she is prayerful. And then to be a generous man who loves God and family. And then together, to be a strong and peaceful family, loving God and country. Those are examples of the sort of an imperative that will structure your entire life. And that's the key. When you start thinking about marriage, or when you, if you're married and you want to be happy, your marriage is the center of your life. One more example, to be a daughter of the church, a faithful wife and a generous mother, to be a kind man, patient with God, others and myself, and together to be a family of faith, of generosity and patience. And so what we said was that if you now have these two setters for the man and the woman, where you can see their, if you will, education, culture, so education, culture, wealth, health, exercise or um, if you will relaxation and exercise and circle of influence as well as fame, spirituality, life of prayer and uh, friendship and family, if they're thinking, if he's thinking of it as, okay, I want to get married and she's doing the same, she also wants to get married. And what I said last time was that uh, the, the, when you combine these two together, you have now the marital imperative that emerges, which is fed by the moral and spiritual imperative of the husband and the wife. And then all these other things become at the service of that marital imperative. So whether it's your education, your culture, your health, your spirituality, your relaxation, your exercising, your food, your friends, your family, no matter what it is, all these things are, re- are seen in relationship to that marital imperative. Are these activities, and are these things helping us achieve what we want to achieve, to become the family we said we wanted to be? The answer is yes, we keep them. The answer is no, we let them go. And I pointed out, as a result, when you have a marital imperative of that kind, you get eight fruits which are exceptional, whether it's exceptional fidelity, loving, service, rapport, negotiation, gratitude, joy, or sexuality, all of those are the fruit of this marital imperative. And you can start to see that we're talking about a marriage of a different quality than the ones that we're used to. Okay, so... I finished last week by pointing out that uh, if you look at all these, at the marital imperative and all the fruits of it, and you move map them to virtues, you can see that most of them are actually of the order of justice, which is which is not necess- which is a natural virtue. So a happy marriage is just is a just natural marriage. Which is why it can be achieved by people of faith and people who do not have faith. Very good. So tonight what I want to focus on is this these exceptional marriages. I'm gonna tell you more about them so you get a sense of how they really work. Let's begin. Like we said we have a marital imperative which is fed by the moral and spiritual imperative of the man and the moral and spiritual imperative of the woman. These two, you can see these circles, they're constantly working on themselves to become better, to become better at what they, at who they want to be so that this marital imperative may be served better and also the marital imperative is helping them become who they want to be. So it's a two-way street. By improving themselves, they, they strengthen their marriage and by strengthening their marriage, they improve themselves. Here's the key question. What must I do in my marriage to be a better example of the positive characteristics and virtues that I hold dear? Which means if we go back to a few slides, When I show you these examples of the imperatives that both men and women have, that's what this is talking about. To be a man of my word, who is faithful to God and to others. That's let's say is my imperative is an example. Then the question becomes, what must I do in my marriage to be a better man of my word, faithful to God and to others? What must I do in my marriage? to be a better example. And both of them are pursuing competence in those areas they were previously uninterested or untalented in. So as part of this improvement, you of self, what is required is to venture into an area that you're uncomfortable with or that you know nothing about for the sake of your marriage. we'll talk more about that so once they clarify their own imperative and they know what kind of virtues and what kind of spiritual life they really are after they start pursuing these competences in those areas that they know little about so that they can actually improve so for instance a husband might get more involved into the chores of the house on his own without being prompted by his wife, and the wife would stop pushing to the husband the things that she doesn't want to do or that she dislikes. She starts to embrace those as ways to improve herself. So like I said, a husband may no longer wait to be asked by his wife to help around the house. Instead, he intentionally I do want to highlight this word, intentionally, okay, intentionally, on his own and with intention, not grudgingly, not doing it just to pacify his wife. He's doing it because he knows this is good for him. And so he starts to work to become more aware of the things that need to be done, and then he does them. And likewise a wife may begin to ask which jobs she pushes over onto her husband simply because she doesn't enjoy doing them and wants to develop a greater competency in those areas all right now here's a couple of interesting things no job is off-limit for either husband or wife no job no job there is no restriction think about that for a second and then think today whether you're married or not about the things you don't want to do or you don't like to do around the house or the place where you live we all have limits this tells us nothing is off-limit anymore both work to be equally aware equally aware okay Yeah, you know, I am highlighting these slowly because I wanted to sink in equally aware of all the domestic, romantic, and financial responsibilities of marriage. Domestic, all the chores, romantic, going on a date, preparing for an evening, and being completely present, let's say, during the the sexual act and then financial responsibilities of marriage. Nothing is off limit to either husband or wife. Both expects themselves. hmm? See that word? expects themselves to do a job if they happen to trip over it first, or are more available to do it, even if it is not their area of expertise. That kind of engagement on both husband and wife's part create a very strong connection between them. It makes the reality of the two becoming one very visible. And that is extremely important. So again, if there is one thing to emphasize is that what we often neglect in marriage is competency. We think of marriage as the place where we go and rest. There's nothing for us to do. There's very little for us to do. We'll just take care of the minimum and then let the marriage run on autopilot. There is no marriage on autopilot. Or let me put it this way. There is no happy marriage on autopilot. The only destination of a marriage on autopilot is divorce. Alright. Now, the consequence of what ju- what I just said is there is a victory of egalitarianism, this complicated word here or long word, egalitarianism, over equality. So, these two now are looking for egalitarianism, not equality. I'll, Get into that thing a little bit more in a minute. This egalitarianism, I'll explain it in a minute. There's a removal of self-protective barriers for intimacy. You're no longer in a situation where you feel that you can't be yourself because yourself is your best self that you're bringing into this marriage. And therefore, the need to protect yourself is gone. And then there is exceptional rapport negotiation if you want to know what these two are i I'll, I'll refer you to the prior talk where i described them in detail okay so conventional couples make a huge issue out of dividing up chores or spheres of influence into nice equal piles to safeguard both fairness and the balance of power, that makes sense. If you're going to look at your marriage or one important component of your marriage as a bunch of things that need to be done, but that need to be done with no benefit to you, meaning there isn't this virtuous improvement of competency. It's just that in order to get this thing to run, these things need to be done, but they have no value in and of themselves, then that's what you're gonna do. You wanna divide them and make sure that everybody is, you know, all hands are on deck and everybody's participating fairly. And there is a proper balance of power, whatever that means. Now, by contrast, partnership husbands and wives, meaning the first leg or the first, if you will, vertical of exceptional couples, the partnership marriage, partnership husbands and wives, know, they know they're equal without the aid of such games. You see, there's a difference between equality of doing which is what number one is all about and equality of being, which is all what number two is about. They expect themselves and their spouse to give 100% of themselves all the time. Period. No particular responsibilities beneath either one of them. And that's really important. They work in a gracefully efficient and often selfless manner to accomplish everything that is important to their life. They don't consider themselves being exploited or used or demeaned because they have to do a particular job. They know and trust that the other is going to be just as committed as they are to the chores or the tasks or all the things that are required for their marriage to function. And as I told you, I was going to talk more about this. The essence of marital egalitarianism is equality of being, not equality of choice. It is one where you never feel that you're being taken for granted. So, no matter how much you give, you will never be taken for granted. Think about that for a second. Everything they share, every chore of married life presents one more opportunity to draw closer together, to become more intimate. That, my friends, is the heart of the matter. Why do you want to grow in competency? Why do you want to improve yourself? Why do you want to be present in your marriage? It's precisely so that you have one more opportunity to draw closer together become more intimate intimacy is not just about sex intimacy is about connectedness of every level intellectual emotional psychological physical and think of intimacy not as why uh, wire connecting two hearts? Think of intimacy as a halo that em- envelops the couple. It is all-encompassing. And when you start to look at these things as ways to draw closer to your spouse and become more intimate, everything in your marriage changes. A husband and wife may meet more attractive, wealthier, or better socially positioned people along the way, but they're convinced that no one is better equipped than their spouse to help them become who they want to be. See that? Convinced no one is better equipped than their spouse help them become who they want to be. That is why these marriages, partnership couples, basically, end up in ha- having relationships that are that have extraordinary intimacy, gratitude, satisfaction, longevity. Why? Because even if you meet someone more attractive and wealthier or better socially positioned, and you will. Everybody does. One day or the other, you will meet someone more attractive. You grow older, so you meet someone younger who is more attractive, potentially. Uh, or if you're younger, you can meet somebody who's wealthier, or maybe you meet someone who's young, younger and wealthier, better socially positioned. They have greater social network. They are, they have a greater reputation. They have, see that, more attraction. They have more wealth they have a better social network but they're not the ones who are going to help you become who you want to be if that's your goal if your goal is to become the man you want to be if your goal is to become the woman you want to be then no one is going to be better equipped than your man, your your spouse in a partnership marriage where both of you are increasing in competency, and both of you are working towards this marital imperative that is really important to you. Once you start to see that, you realize then that someone more attractive would be would be a little bit like someone who maybe have a better watch. They have something better, but that something better is just a dead thing. It doesn't. It's not going to give you the strength, the stamina, the comfort, and the support you need to be able to become who you want to be, your spouse will. And then, so like I said, partnership couples consider themselves uniquely qualified to help each other fulfill their life's mission and value system. This attitude lends itself to the extraordinary intimacy, gratitude, satisfaction, longevity, exceptional couples enjoy. I think with that you start to see how marriage can actually last a lifetime. How people can be married for decades because there is no end to self-betterment. There is no end to becoming who you want to be. You're always going to be working on it. And having someone by your side who who has your back who's going to help you to become who you want to be means that you have found meaning in life. So, the other really important thing about this competency is that the the discussions that result from working side by side in almost every aspect of life lead to a deep level of rapport and understanding. If you have, you're competent in say chores, If the spouse, if the husband is as competent in chores as the wife is, and the wife is as competent in the, in, let's say, um, the financials, the budget, the taxes of the house as the husband is, then conversation about those things are going to be more pleasant, deeper, and with greater understanding because each party understand what it takes to do the thing. And there is a true appreciation and gratitude for the work that was done. And so they understand each other better. They understand what they're going through, the difficulty. They understand the challenges of life that they're facing together at every aspect. And they're able to share them and use them to deepen their intimacy. As a result... They exhibit a high degree of respect for one another, even when they disagree. They respect each other because they know the competency that each of them have for, towards each other and how it's being used. And then arguments, when they happen, as they happen, they must happen. So let me take a minute and talk about arguments. Um, a marriage without arguments is a marriage in which growth is not happening but I want to be prudent that could be possible is it possible that you have two people who are so on such a wavelength on such a perfect way on the same wavelength so perfectly that they never need to argue about anything it's a couple let's say where they accept each other weaknesses their own weaknesses they're not ashamed of anything They are able to uh, work on everything um, in a very peaceful and open hearted way without any constraints or obstacles. I am just going to go on limb here and say that it is possible for such a couple to exist. I have never met one, but that doesn't mean they cannot exist. For the rest of us, where arguments happen in marriage. The difference in an exceptional marriage like this one, in peer partnership, which is what we've been discussing for a little while, is that arguments are experienced as deep muscle massages, which may feel uncomfortable at the time, but will afterward leave the marriage more relaxed and flexible. The argument is deep because they know each other. They know what, who they are and what they want to be. They know what their marital imperative is. And when they argue about something, it it delves into who they are. It's an argument at the level of being, not a level of having. And therefore, these are deep arguments. They are going to be uncomfortable. There's work to be done. But because of the respect, because of the understanding, because of the trust, because of a sense of deep gratitude, because they know that they're not taken for granted, those arguments never devolve into an ugly argument. And that's the beauty of the peer partnership marriage. And that's why they actually can preserve their happiness, even when they have an argument who is really hard. I don't mean that during the argument they're happy. I mean, they preserve the overall happiness of their marriage and arguments do not take those things. And arguments are not able or capable to take that happiness down. Okay, so again, we're talking about partnership marriage i describe them now in general now we're going to dive into the modern type of a partnership marriage then talk about the traditional type of mar- par- partnership marriage and then we'll finish with the spiritual peer marriage okay traditional partnership traditional spouses build their marriage around conservative religious values and the husband is usually the breadwinner but he's expected and expects himself to be every bit as competent parent and homemaker as his wife. So the fact that he's a breadwinner doesn't mean that he's going to go and work out, do his job and all of that, and then leave the kids and the house to the wife. And he has nothing to do with it. He is expected and expects himself to be every bit as competent parent and homemaker as his wife. Doesn't mean th- that he's doing all the work himself. It just means that if there is something to be done when he's home, he can do it. Whether with the kids, or the house, or the chores. He's attentive and intimately involved in the home life and domestic work. Attentive. That word means he's not coming home and then lounging on the couch watching sports or um, Excluding himself from the family life, but he is very involved in the family life. He works hard to communicate his emotions well and his needs respectfully. He works hard, guys, works hard, hard, hard. We're not good at communicating emotions, we can learn. Communicating emotions doesn't mean you're going to sit on the couch and become a puddle. Doesn't mean you're going to fall apart. It means being able to express what you're feeling in a clear and concise language so your wife is aware of them. If you're frustrated at work, if you had a hard day. If you having doubts about whether you should continue in this career or not, if you are not satisfied with some aspect of marital life, you should be able to express your emotions and say, I feel this way. If he has needs, if you have needs that you want fulfilled, you need to be able to say them respectfully. Um, it takes hard work to do that. It's not easy, particularly if for the most part of your life, you've been clamping it down, thinking that you can't speak of those things. So you, you have work ahead of you. And if you are not in relationship right now, you're a young man who is not yet in a marital relationship. Now is the time for you to start thinking about those things. Do I communicate my emotions well? Do I express my needs respectfully? If you want to know more, ask your parents, ask your siblings, ask people who know you. Those are meaningful conversations and they're worth having. The wife, so let's actually back it up. Conventional Mom, so we're talking about a conventional marriage in which the mother is staying at home. They tend to be torn. They feel what they do is valuable. They know it's valuable, but they struggle with society's and sometimes even their own husbands, general dismissiveness of women who work at home. So that they, they, they feel that they're sort of second class citizen. Right? They can often feel inferior to their star wife friends. Remember star, is a form of conventional marriage in in which the husband and the wife, um, you know, put career first. Career is paramount to them. And therefore, uh, the wives tend to have uh, very successful careers. And so they can feel um, inferior to their star wife friends. A traditional partnership wife experiences no such identity crisis. She has no doubt about what she's doing. She's an equal participant in financial planning, meaning the budget for the house, what needs to be spent, where she's just as good at it as her husband is. She may homeschool the children or make other significant contributions of service and skills that give her family an economic edge. That's absolutely true. Uh, Homeschooling mothers actually give their family an economic edge because of the service they render and the way they do it. And in fact, um, I mean, he's talking about economic edge because it's in the context of financial planning. I mean, the author that's taken from the book, basically. But um, there is more to it than that, right? The contribution is really at the level of the entire family. And that cannot be properly monetized or estimated. She's sure of the importance and financial value of contribution. She knows her worth. And her husband supports her completely she finds a deep fulfillment in the hard work she does and that's really important so you have basically two people a man and a woman both having a personal imperative that they use to create a marital imperative and even though they have conventional roles they do not use those roles to separate them they're competent in everything that concerns the house and the wife is also aware of what her husband is doing, what is his work about, and she understands it and she can speak about it properly. And she works really hard to understand the budget and all the economic factors in the home, and she's a completely an equal she's an equal participant in that budget with her husband. And along all the other qualities of a partnership marriage. You have then a very vital, or, or I'm sorry, a marriage which is f- full of vitality, strength, and joy. And those are the um, end results of what a partnership, ma- partnership conventional or, or um, a traditional marriage would give you. In a modern partnership, it's the same thing but they're built around more secular and liberal ideas. The dynamic of the relationship is basically the same. However, traditional partnerships suggest that one person oversees domestic responsibilities and one person oversees financial affairs. Whereas in the case of a liberal partnership, they want full participation of both spouses. So that means their life can be more chaotic, but that eliminate the temptation to coast that can affect traditional partnerships. So what is meant by coasting? It means that there is a temptation, uh, as always, to let the other spouse do more. And you just sort of back off a little bit. And it takes work to avoid coasting and do what you have to do. In the case of a liberal marriage, uh, coasting is really hard because... um, there is a, um, an understanding that both are participating equally all the time. So that creates more chaos, if you will, less ability to really structure things, but it avoids that temptation to ghost. Okay. So spouses in either flavor partnership marriage prefer to do something they don't like with their spouse instead of doing something they like with someone else. I want you to think about that for a second. Spouses in either flavor, partnership, marriage prefer to do something they don't like with their spouse instead of doing something they like with someone else. Why? Because whatever they don't like, the sign that they don't like it is an indication that they lack competency in that area. You are not competent at something that you don't like. Now uh, what do I mean by that? Obviously you have a lot of people who are competent at things they do at work which they don't like. That's because they're paid and they do it. At home, typically if there's something you don't like, you just let it go. That's conventional marriage in a partnership marriage. Like I said earlier, they will not allow themselves to push onto their spouse, something they don't like. They will, um, grow their competency into that area and become better at it. So your husband, let's say loves to stroll on the beach and you don't like to walk in the sun and the wife doesn't like to walk on the sun in the sun. Well, she gets herself a hat. And she goes walking with him on the beach. The wife would love to go and play golf, and the husband couldn't care less about golf. He goes and takes some lessons to be passable at golf so that he could have a good time with his wife. That's a sort of partnership between them that trumps any other relationship. Again, that's the partnership between them that trumps any other relationship. You can see how couples like these are inoculated from affairs and from complication and all that trash that a lot of, or not some couples can't fall into because of the fact they're pulled away, they're pulled apart. Their world is not a union of their hearts. So that's why this particular rule here is very important. What are the challenges in a partnership marriage? There are obviously still challenges. The the one area of challenge for partnership marriages is that they can be so close and respect each other so much that sex no longer seems an appropriate way to relate. And that's an odd thing to say. What is meant by that? Well, as one wife puts it, it's hard for me to get nasty with somebody I love and respect so much. And this brings us back to this thing that I said in on Wednesday. You could conceive of sexual relationship in one of two ways. You can think of it as um, something you do for your own satisfaction, or you can think of it as something you do for the satisf- satisfaction of the other. Now, usually, because of everything we've been, because of the way sex is treated in the world, because it's demeaned, because it is depraved, because it is treated as a merchandise, because it's alienated from the heart. Um, Many of us grow with this understanding of sexuality as something to be used to satisfy ourselves. We don't see a gift in sex. We see something to be consumed. And so this get nasty business, is where you are trying to use the other to satisfy yourself. Now I want to say that very loving couples can end up in a situation like this one. The husband loves his wife and the wife loves her husband. The problem for the husband in particular is that he can't really engage physically in the act without having these sort of nasty thoughts in his head. But as this respect and love grows, he, it, it sort of starts to bump again, those nasty ideas he might have in his head and therefore it sort of short circuit his desire to get into a a sexual relationship and the same for the wife. So then what to do here? The couple must challenge the core of their sexuality and discover how marital union is not only a celebration of goodness, but an opportunity for actualization. See, this here, opportunity for actualization. What's it got to do with sex? What is is opportunity for actualization has to do with sex? Opportunity for actualization is nothing more than the ability to become who you want to be. What he's basically saying is that the drive for the sexual relationship becomes uh, sourced from your sense of deep joy of being with that person. Because by being with that person, you're becoming who you want to be. Now that, what I just said right now, might sound like um, gibberish to a lot of people that is not the way we usually talk about sex that is certainly not the way we usually motivate people in marriage even when we're talking about sex but in truth this is a different source of a sexual drive um it's like when you you know you make a beautiful painting and you want to give that to your fiance or to your wife and you are waiting to see what she's going to think of it you may maybe do the portrait of her and she opens it and she's stunned she's stunned by the work you did and the effort you put into it and she looks at you and she comes and then she holds you and you hold her that can generate a sexual drive that is extremely powerful that it doesn't require nastiness to be built into it And I would say this, it is much easier to um, get to this level, opportunity of actualization, for folks who've been virgin until they were married. Virginity has this beautiful thing about it that it preserves your core it preserves your core from these nasty ideas. Um, So those who engage in casual sex are really doing themselves a disservice when it comes to marriage, because they're training themselves to think of sex as something where they need to get nasty. And it's much harder to be able to reach that level of sexuality when you've engaged in casual sex. Now I'm not saying this to, um, you know, criticize those who've engaged into that sort of sexuality. My point here isn't to criticize anyone. The point is to simply highlight the beauty of virginity and to say that there are fundamental qualities to virginity that go beyond the fact that you did not have sexual experience. They basically say that you preserved yourself and you made yourself more ready to really engage in a meaningful and deep relationship with someone else. Um, And it goes without saying what I mean by virginity is that you haven't engaged into porn, you haven't engaged into any of these sort of uh, sexual activities that are all on the get nasty side, right? Okay. Partnership couples must be willing to sacrifice their careers in favor of their marriage. That's the other hard part for a lot of people. You can't be willing to engage into a deep career is going to consume you and hope to have a happy marriage. All right. That's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to have a happy marriage if you're working 80 hours a week or you're working 60 hours a week and you're away from your house, away from your wife, away from your kids, away from your family, and you think somehow you're going to have a happy marriage. That is... Delusion. Doesn't work that way. The couple who is willing to scale back on their income and decrease the energy they expend pursuing their career have the best chance of achieving not only the highest known form of marriage, but also the strongest identity strength. I know a lot of people have been told the opposite. I know we've been um, harping on um, Everyone to be ambitious, to climb the ladder, to be strong, to be powerful, to be um, to reach, you know, high levels of responsibility. And all of those things are good things. For others. If you're strong, if you're powerful to reach the high level of responsibility, you're going to affect the life of a lot of people. And hopefully, What you do will affect them positively, so that's good for them. So think of it this way, power at work is like a vocation to the priesthood. You are committed to this work and you're committed to actually do something that will affect the lives of others. But you can't expect to, ex- to be able to expand so much energy and effort into becoming powerful, climbing the ladder, and reaching the highest positions, and at the same time, creating that kind of intimacy and living up to the marital imperative that we were describing. it. It's simply not practical. It's not going to work. So you have a choice to make. But fundamentally, I've been saying this all along, if you really think about it. Is marriage a center of your life? Are you willing to concede all activities to your marital imperative? Are you willing to look at them in that light? Is this activity serving my marital imperative? And to what degree? And so, marriage, so work particularly, need to be scaled back. But I would say the same thing of a bunch of other things. It doesn't have to be just work. If you are passionate about car racing, well, you're going to have to scale that down. If you're passionate about XYZ, you know, plug whatever you want in there. Same thing. Is marriage the center of your life? ask the question. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the last couple, which is spiritual peer marriage. So how is different in spiritual peers marriage? So in the spiritual peers marriage, really the marital imperative now has taken over. You see how the circle now is joining both of them. It's like they are, they reach this level where by simply living up to the marital imperative, they're able to improve themselves, whereas before it was sort of disconnected. In the case of um, partnership couple, it's still disconnected. Here the marital imperative takes over completely. This is the top of the marital food chain. They account for no more than 4% of all marriages. I think you understand now why, I hope. It isn't because you need to be super educated or super knowledgeable or super talented or super anything. This is a question of commitment. What are you committing to? They focus on intimacy in the context of self-actualization. So, to be actualized is to be a joyful, living, breathing example of a particular value system. All right, what does that mean? To be actualized is to be who you want to be, is to be a living proof of that, um, that imperative that was important to you. You're a man of your word and you're patient and you love people and God. And people look at you and say, This is a man of his word, he's patient, love people and God. Nothing is more important than helping each other live a deeply held set of spiritual values, moral ideas, and emotional goals. So, helping each other. Helping each other, which is that th- this, this basically is nothing more than the marital imperative, what you see here. Okay. And that's, that's, that's it. That's what you are doing when you're married. That is the number one goal of being married. Partnership couples still struggle with how to apply their deeply held ideals in their unique circumstances, often seeking clarifying advice from groups or spiritual peers spiritual peers have almost completely internalized their values. They no longer have to check with anyone else to see if they're doing it right. And nothing is more important than helping each other live a deeply held set of spiritual values, moral ideals, and emotional goals. I'm repeating it because I think it's worth repeating. So, you can also tell that in order to get to this level of spiritual peers, have almost completely internalized. Well, that is going to take time. And so, um, there is no expectation here that a newly wed couple is going to get there in a year. This is a work of a lifetime. But as long as they're working towards this, they can reach the partnership couple, the the partnership level, quickly. And then they're going to sit there for a while working on their competency, improving their relationship, and then. Figuring out exactly if what they're doing makes sense or not. Am I doing too much? Is she doing too little? Are we working on it the right way? Until they reach a point where there is stability. I would also say that when you have kids and the kids are young, um, they obviously are going to introduce an element of variability that might make it harder to get to that point where you've completely internalized your values. Why? Because you're dealing with situations that sometimes are very complicated and you're not sure which way to go. And so I would, that's me, that's not the book. I, my sense is oftentimes in order to, to get to a point where you are at the spiritual peer level, you've essentially gone through the whole parenting cycle. Your kids now are grown and you really have more time to focus on each other. But again, it's entirely possible that younger couple reach that level quicker than anyone else with the kids or maybe because of the kids. Spiritual peers are about simplification. Simplification, competence, egalitarianism, right? Simplification means what? Whatever doesn't serve our marriage is out. Simplification isn't about, oh, we have too much stuff in the house that, that's decluttered. Really, if you think about decluttering, for instance, what is being said here is that we have too many things that do not serve our marriage. Get rid of them. Competence is the ability to do things that in every sphere that interests both husbands and wives. And egalitarianism means that you're never taken for granted. And there is a quality of being and you're grateful and joyful, and you're happy to be with the other. So these guys, the couple who is in spiritual peers are off the fast track. They're not, their hearts and minds isn't on, hey, let me move my career up. Let me make more money. Uh, Let me get more stuff. They could work more but have concluded that the time and money isn't worth the cost to their pursuit of intimacy and other values. And they have more important things to do, loving each other and their children. Now somebody asked me how much money we need, how do we know? And my answer was, ask your spouse. If your spouse feels that you're not present then you're not loving him or her enough, you're probably making too much money. Well, you might say, well, wait a minute. Um, but we might, this means that we may not even meeting our budget. Well, I said, ask your spouse, because if your spouse is saying you're not loving me enough, what does it mean? It means every aspect of life, including budget. Love is all encompassing. Love doesn't mean sex. Sex is a component of love, but love is all encompassing. Okay. They don't give up anything they really need. Like I just said, money is needed. And to the degree they need it, they don't give it up, but they do give up everything they don't need like approval or more money than their needs. They are both competent in all aspects of family life. And uh, and like I said earlier, once the kids are older, it's easier to become competent in all aspects of family life because it's just the two of you. All right. Now what's interesting is that they are so good at taking care of each other that outsiders think that it's happened magically. But that's true of any competency you can see for instance a magician with a sleight of hand and we say "Wow, well, it's magic it's really competency those people who do these sleigh of hand and magic are so competent that it looks so easy uh, people who are skating might make it look like it's extremely easy but it's actually competency people who play chess people who play games in ways that we that, that leaves us astounded they're just competent people who are really good at something and we wonder how do they do it and we start to think they have oh they, they must have something special to make it easy for them no in most cases it's just competency it's work it's a lot of hard work it is competency A great deal of very hard work goes into making these marriages work, but it is most definitely a labor of love. And spiritual peers are each other's best friends, have virtually no secrets for each other, and have achieved the level of spiritual sexuality that is truly enviable. Spiritual sexuality is, like I said, this idea that you are there, you are uh, celebrating joyfully your union, and it's a moment of... It's a satisfying moment of peace, of exchange, of being together, of really feeling that we are present to each other in ways um, where there are no barriers, and we are experiencing something that is really profound beyond just the physical act. And I personally would essentially strike this out. I took it from the book, but... I would say they have no secrets for each other. Okay. The relationship becomes more vital, exciting, fun, and fulfilling as the years go by, right? Because they're growing into this intimacy. And therefore, it is always uh, more beautiful. They are accepting themselves and of others. So they've learned humility, they've learned their limitations. They are at peace when life becomes unpredictable because they have each other, so they remain at peace. And they are spontaneous and creative. None of those things are easy. None of things come naturally. This is hard work. It is hard work. They have a good sense of humor. They absolutely value their privacy. It's really important to what they do together. And they can take care of themselves. And finally, they are capable of deeply intimate relationships. Actually, there's one more. They have an open positive attitude about life. Okay. So that's what perhaps we want to think about when we're thinking about a marital imperative, what kind of marital imperative allow us to be accepting of ourselves and others being at peace when life becomes more unpredictable, we're spontaneous and creative, we have a good sense of humor, we value our privacy, we can take of ourselves and we're capable of deeply intimate relationships and we have an open positive attitude about life. I think, um, whatever imperative we want to come up with need to sort of lead to these sets of core traits that I think are really important for a couple to have. And they are the couples everyone wants to be when they grow up. That's the biggest compliment anyone can give a couple. Okay. So we went through and we talked about impoverished and shipwrecked marriage, conventional exceptional partnership, marriage, and spiritual peer. And we said that a shipwrecked wife. So in this particular case, what I'm going to talk about is an example. A shipwrecked wife would die a thousand deaths at the thought of changing a light bulb if she thought that was her husband's duty to do it, but she could spend 300 times as much energy nagging him to do it. That's what happens inside of shipwreck marriage. In a conventional marriage, the wife would change the bulb if her husband didn't get around to do it, but she would secretly resent his dereliction of duty for the rest of her life, or at least for the rest of the day. The partnership wife would change the light bulb without a second thought, and the peer wife might not only change the bulb without thinking, but she might also actually rewire the entire house before her husband is back from home. And like likewise for her husband, A shipwrecked husband would consider watching his kids babysitting, and he does it reluctantly and looks for the earliest opportunity to sack on the sofa as quickly as possible. Conventional husband knows that he should want to watch his kids, but it would only be a matter of time before he is bored and send them to the basement to play so he can get work done. A partnership husband would eagerly play with the children and would be happy to give his wife a break when she asks for it. And in spiritual big peer marriage, the peer husband would be begging for his wife to go out so he can spend time with his kids. And by the time she comes back home, all the chores will be done. You can see the sort of progression in competency for both the husband and the wife. And you can see how that affects the other spouse and how it can be very important. As an example, you can see Kenny and Bobby McCoggy. McC- I talked about them last week, so I'm going to do it quickly. Here, right here, you can see their older daughter, Michaela, and then everyone else is the sextuplet, seven children, one, one pregnancy. It was so natural, and it was uh, really exceptional. This is um, Kenny. I'm sorry. This is Bobby, and this is Kenny, right here. And um, this couple was pretty exceptional because if you think about it, they began life together as an average working class couple with a strong connection to the community and church. So mostly conventional. They became parents of their, of their daughter, Michaela and the famous Macaulay septuplets, the seven children. Now, when his wife was bedridden into a pregnancy, Kenny was forced to challenge his competencies more quickly and more pervasively than you. Or I will probably have to, and I apologize, call him Bobby, but he is Kenny and she is Bobby and then through this labor he developed an exceptional gratitude towards his wife and as a result they held to their marital imperative the theme of their marriage summed up by a line in the song they sang to each other at their wedding and the world shall know that we are a household of faith that was their that was their imperative which they picked out of a song at their wedding and through that imperative they were able to actually live up to and become an exceptional couple and here they are today. You can see here is, uh, Michaela and she's with her husband and child. And these are the seven children and, um, Kenny and Bob are here. And last time I checked on them, I think two of the septuplet were engaged and they're really close to each other, and they, they, they think of themselves as being best friends. And this family in its longevity and happiness and cohesiveness is a sign of this exceptional love that is acceptable to, accessible to anyone. Again, I'll reiterate the point. This is not about being a specialist at anything. This is just about committing to that husband, marriage and making it the, the, the heart, the heart of your relationship and of your life. so the same can be true about you because every particle of every human being body and soul cries out to be made whole by love by being loved by others by loving others and by love itself what better opportunity to pursue this most natural of callings than the opportunity presented by your marriage which is nothing if it is not a school of love in every sense of the phrase it is never too late to start it's never too late to return to the true essence of your marriage and if you're not married then begin by reflecting on your personal more spiritual life and ask yourself who do you want to be and that basically is the end of this talk I hope that you found it helpful if you have questions reach out to me by emailing me at question at corbono.com and I'll do my best to answer them God bless you